If I were to introduce uh, this morning's message by saying that we're going to talk about the final night of Jesus' life, stories that include Peter's threefold denial of the Lord, stories like the prayer and arrest of the Garden of Gethsemane, stories like Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and Pilate, stories like his beating and ultimate death on the cross. If I were to start off this message by saying we're going to talk about some of these things, I have a suspicion that some of us would start to tune out. Why? Because we know these stories. We know these stories so well. We've heard them so many times. We've been to many an Easter, uh, Easter message or many a, a message that talks about the passion of Christ, the, the final week of Jesus' life. And it's a tendency of ours, having heard these stories so many times, it is perhaps the story we are most familiar with in all of our lives. It's our tendency to tune out when we begin a series of messages on those topics. We say, yeah, I... I've been there, I've done that, I I know this issue. Ben Witherington makes this comment with respect to that familiarity. He writes this, he says, The problem with teaching and preaching from Mark's passion narrative, the final week of Christ's life, is that the stories are so familiar that many of one's listeners hardly hear the text or its exposition. And I even put up there a a familiar painting. I'm sure most of you have probably seen that painting before, and you look at it and you're like, yeah, I know that story. I've heard that story. I'm familiar with that story. And and Witherington says, hey, it gets to the point where you know it so well, your audience knows it so well that as a preacher or as a teacher, you've got a big strike against you as you begin to preach a, a message like this. And I will admit that I myself have fallen prey to this in my own listening to other people preach or teach. But I'm going to ask all of us this morning and every morning hereafter until Easter, that we would consider not tuning out on the very familiar stories in Mark 14 and 15. Don't assume we can't learn from this story the story that you're most familiar with. Because this story is too great, it's too rich in meaning, it's too powerful in its message to ignore. And most especially this morning, I want us to feel this story. I want us to sense this story. I want us to sense the emotion that Jesus must have felt on this final night. A final merciless night of His life. The title of my message today is Jesus' Merciless Last Night. And I put up there a a new picture. A picture that you've probably never seen before. Uh, This was painted by a a Catholic artist by the name of Michael O'Brien. And that's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's His rendition of of Jesus' final night praying in the Garden. And I wanted to put up a new picture to indicate that we are going to read this afresh. We're going to read this again for the first time. And remember the depth and the richness of this great story. Now where are we in the Gospel of Mark Jesus and His disciples have just left the Passover meal in Jerusalem. And they've retreated just outside the city to the Mount of Olives for some final teaching and prayer. Only this night is a little bit different than the other nights in Jerusalem. 
You see, earlier in the week, they would leave Jerusalem and they would go to Bethany, a nearby town. They would stay at the home of Simon the leper. But tonight, on the night of Passover, they weren't going to make it back to Bethany. Tonight would be their last night together. And on this last night, Jesus has some grave final words for His disciples. Turn your Bibles to Mark 14, beginning in verse 27. Jesus, Jesus speaking here. Then Jesus said to them, All of you, My disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, it is written. It has been prophesied. Jesus says, all of you will be made to stumble this night. It's been prophesied. Events are about to take place that will provoke you, all of you, to fall away and desert me. The quote that Jesus takes from the Old Testament is from Zechariah 13.7. The striking of the shepherd and the scattering of the sheep. And here we find the first real sense, a real sense of emotion that Jesus must have felt on that merciless last night. The first emotion that He must have felt is a sense of abandonment. A sense of abandonment. On Jesus' merciless last night, number one, was abandonment. He was abandoned. He was forsaken by the disciples most close to Him. His companions most close to Him. He was let go. All those years of being together, all the many, many years of, of teaching together and learning together and growing together, and here Jesus in His final hour says, you the twelve closest companions I have, every single one of you will betray me, will, will, will abandon me tonight. Every single one of you will abandon me tonight. You will be scattered abroad. But there's hope. Jesus gives hope. And look at verse 28. He says, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So He gives him a glimmer of hope here. He says, Despite... Despite this, this grave prophecy that I'm giving you that all of you are going to abandon me, I want you to also know that, that as I'm going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified this night, I'm going to be raised up. And when I am, I will, lead you, I will go before you into Galilee. Though Jesus would be abandoned by His own, He would not abandon His disciples. He says, I will go before you into Galilee. And that's exactly what we find in Mark 16:7. It says that Jesus went before them into Galilee. And that was where they regrouped. That was where they regathered. That was where they, they returned in hope together. Regrouping after Jesus' death and resurrection, considering their future mission. But Peter, Peter remains focused on Jesus' first statement in verse 27. Peter heard Jesus' words, all of you will be made to stumble, and, and he, took, he took great offense. Take a look at Peter's response in verse 29. Peter said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Have you ever made a rash oath? Perhaps you uh, entered into an agreement with a, another person, a, uh, made a promise to them, and not long thereafter, when trouble came your way, you failed to make good on, on your end of the deal. King Solomon said some 3,000 years ago, he said, he said, we should not be rash with our mouth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We shouldn't be rash with our mouth. The book of James says, says that we're to be slow to speak. Slow to speak. And Jesus says earlier in the Gospel accounts, He says we should be exceedingly careful of making solemn oaths. Exceedingly careful of making such oaths. Why? Witherington writes this. He says, Few of us, few of us, know in advance what we are capable of in a crisis situation. We may stoutly confess in advance that we will be true to the end, but put under pressure... How often do we bail out or back out or even deny we committed ourselves in the first place? I think that's well said. You see, friends, our flesh is very, very weak. And despite our best efforts and our greatest resolve, despite our best determination, we can and sometimes do fail to make good on our promises. We can and sometimes do make fa fail to make good on the covenants that we've made on the promises that we've made, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business matter, or in these days, whether it's a mortgage. Sometimes, when the crisis hits, when trouble comes, the covenant that we've made, the oath that we've made, the paper that we've signed, we're quick to abandon it. We're quick to let it go. We're quick to deny our responsibility, or even try to admit that, hey, we didn't even commit ourselves to that in the first place. Somebody tricked me into it. I've heard advertisements a lot on the radio lately um, um, from uh, organizations that purport um, that, uh, that they're, going to, they're going to fight for you uh, with respect to your home mortgage. And uh, one such company... Uh, their, their, their tagline is basically, hey, you let us know about your loan and we will find some fine print. We will find some hidden little nugget there that you can use against that company to renegotiate your mortgage. We'll find something that they did wrong as you sign the dotted line so that you can uh, let go of that contract. Now, sometimes... Banks are disingenuous. Sometimes loans that we sign or contracts that we sign um, are, uh, are done in a sneaky or treacherous way so as to trap the one signing it. But friends, let there be no mistake. Uh, we are to make good on our responsibilities. When we sign on the dotted line, when we make a promise, when we make a covenant, we are not to look for excuses to get out of it. We are not to look for excuses to run away from those promises. 
and to run away from those contracts and those covenants. And uh, this is an issue that's near and dear to me because I feel in our culture today, we are so quick to say, eh, well, so-and-so, they, they've already got enough money. Or, well, eh, that, that contract I signed, that doesn't matter. I'm the little guy. I'm the, I'm the little one. I, I, I need to get what's due me. Friends, this is not the perspective of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is not the perspective of the Bible. When we sign on the dotted line, when we make a promise, when we make a covenant, we make good on it. We make good on it. And sometimes that means a lot of pain and a lot of anguish as we try to make good on it. Now Peter was absolutely convinced that he would not deny Jesus. He was absolutely convinced of it. And Jesus says, Peter, you're... you're you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. In fact, you're so wrong, as we return to the text here, you're so wrong, Jesus says, that this night, you're going to deny me three times. Three times, you're not going to make good on your promise to me. You're not going to make good on your covenant. Three times, you're not going to make good on your oath. And herein we come to the second emotion Jesus must have felt, and that is denial. Jesus was denied. Don't lose sight of the painful experience this must have been. Peter, his closest, um, one of his closest disciples, Peter, the one whom Jesus pointed at and said, You're going to build the church. Peter, the one who was the leader of the disciples, and Jesus. He looked at one of his closest friends and said, you're going to deny me three times tonight. The depth of emotion Jesus must have felt. And thirdly, what it led to, the grief. Jesus was grieved. Deeply, deeply grieved. Take a look now at verse 33 and following. Excuse me, 32 and following. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And Jesus said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The words troubled and deeply distressed, if we were to translate that more literally, it would be shuddering in distress and anguishing. Shuddering in distress and anguishing. Jesus is shaking. He's shaking. He's anguished. Other Gospel accounts indicate He sweat drops of blood. What is He scared of? What petrifies Jesus in this moment? It says, in verse 36, it says in His prayer what petrified Him. 
He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Here's what I'm scared of. Take this cup away from me. Take this cup away from me. What is Jesus scared of? He's scared of the cup. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's judgment. The cup of God's punishment on Christ at the cross. Jesus is afraid of the cup. He's trembling about that cup. The cup of God's wrath. And take note of Jesus' prayer. A a very unique prayer. He says, Abba, Father. Abba there meaning the, the, the most intimate address, the most intimate Jewish address of God, of Yahweh. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Jesus recognizes His Father's authority. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. And now the petition. Take this cup away from Me. Take this this wrath, this judgment, this punishment I'm about to incur, take it away from me. That's his petition. But then notice how he ends. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. A recognition of God as the authority. God in control. God's on the throne. The petition, take this cup away from me. I don't want this. Our petition. But he ends the petition with returning. But not what I want. What you want. Not what I want. What you want. He returns to God's authority. He returns to God's sovereignty. The petition is not an insisting petition. It is an asking petition. And it is a deferential petition. One in which Jesus asks and yet says but I will still submit regardless if you answer my prayer. Now in the meantime, we'll get to the prayer, we'll finish that prayer in just a moment, but in the meantime, Jesus has asked Peter, James, and John to stay near Him and to remain alert and prayerful. But as Jesus returns to them, He finds them sleeping. Look at verse 37. Then He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. Total apathy. You know, total indifference. Jesus in His last moments on earth, in His last, in His direst hour, He's saying, pray with Me. Be with Me. Sit here. I'm going to go there. A stone's throw away. Be with me now in spirit. Pray for me. Pray with me. Be the, tw- be the companions that I've asked you to be in my darkest hour. And he comes back and he finds his friends sleeping. He finds them apathetic. He finds them indifferent. Take a look at this next slide. Can you imagine if that was, uh, if you were an Olympic athlete? And you were done with your competition, and the judge took uh, the, the judges were about to reveal their scores, and you looked as the athlete, and you looked at the judges, and there you saw that one in the middle, reading the newspaper, and just grabbing any card they could. How about a 5.5? That sounds good. 
Imagine the feeling you must have right at that moment. Imagine the frustration. Imagine the, the sense that, hey, I, I trained for this. This was my all. I gave it everything I had. And here I have a judge, one of my judges, reading the newspaper, picking up whatever score they can find on their desk. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not proper. You ever, you ever called a friend for help? Or emailed a friend for help and, and you asked for prayer or, or help from them and, and counsel and, and you were ignored or given only shallow assent? Or you were standing with someone here after church and trying to speak with them and the person that you were speaking with was just kind of their eyes were kind of wandering every which way, thinking about lunch. It's a, it's a, it's a tough feeling when you don't have that support. When you don't have that camaraderie behind you. You know, our, our, our first instincts when, when we're approached by somebody needing counsel or help or they're in need and they, and they, they just they need you to listen to them for a while, our, our first instincts, our fleshly instincts, are to avoid that situation, aren't they? Our fleshly instincts is to be selfish in a moment like that. When, our, when, when someone we know is in need or in dire circumstances and they need our attention for a great deal of time. Our first instinct is to be selfish. We think about our own needs. We try to run away from the situation. We don't want to be bothered by the problems of others. But when we pause, when we pause, and when we truly consider the importance of the situation, we recognize the futility of our first instincts. And we usually take time to do what is right. We look at those first instincts and we say those were wrong. And we make right on it. And we listen. And we're there for that friend in need. Many of you know of the Pieta. There's a picture of it behind me. The Pieta was a masterpiece of Michelangelo. It was... It was... Uh, chiseled away in approximately 1499. One of Michelangelo's finest works. It sits today in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. I had the privilege of seeing it uh, a couple years ago. And uh, it is, uh, again, one of Michelangelo's most famous works. The, the statue itself uh, was commissioned by a French cardinal named Jean de Bilharis. And uh, he, he was a a high-ranking representative in Rome. And the statue was commissioned to be made for the cardinal's funeral monument. In other words, when the, when the cardinal, when he died, this statue was to be seated in a prominent position at his funeral, this famous French cardinal. In time, it, uh, it was moved from chapel to chapel and finally had its, uh, has, its, has had its final resting place in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. One of the most famous Statues of all human history. Uh, Mary holding her dead son, Jesus. An interesting story about this, this sculpture was that on May 21st, 1972, a mentally disturbed geologist named Laszlo Toth walked into the chapel and attacked the Pieta with a hammer. He strode into the chapel, again, being mentally impaired, had the hammer in hand. It was not 
at that time encased in bulletproof casing as it is this day. And he walked straight up to this amazing work of art, 500 years old, one of Michelangelo's greatest pieces of all. And he took a hammer and he went straight at the statue and started beating it and breaking it into dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces. As if that wasn't enough, the first instincts of the tourists who were in the Basilica that day, the first instincts of the national Italians who were in the Basilica that day, was, believe it or not, to, not only, to first some stopped the man, but others grabbed pieces of the Pieta and ran. They grabbed pieces of that great statue and ran like mad out of the basilica to their homes, having in their hands one of the greatest pieces of history. Altogether, some nearly a hundred pieces of the Pieta had been lost. And the Vatican in Rome put out, uh, they were considering, what can we do? What can we do to retrieve these pieces? What, uh, we must do something to retrieve this great work of art. And what they decided to do was they decided to put on a national broadcast in all of Rome saying that if you would return the piece that you've taken, uh, no, one, no charges will be, will be uh, charged of you. We will not press charges. If you will but bring your piece of the Pieta back to the Basilica and lay it at the, at the footsteps of this great church, no charges will be pressed and you will be allowed to go free. And do you know that over the span of a week, some ten days, every piece of the Pieta was returned. Every single piece was returned safely. Now, Why do I bring up this story? Why do I, why do I bring up this moment? Friends, the first instincts of the tourists and the Italians in the Basilica that day, when they saw the Pieta on the ground, was to be selfish. Their first instincts was to be selfish. It was to grab a piece of amazing human history and run like mad with it. Their first instincts was to sell it, make a fortune, and be selfish. But when they paused when they considered the weight of their offense, when they recognized that their first instincts were wrong, these tourists and these Italians, every single one of them, returned to St. Peter's Basilica, peace in hand, to do what was right. To do what was good. To make good on their end of the bargain. And every peace was returned. Friends, when we have a friend in need, when we have someone out in that courtyard after church, or during our day, during our work day, on the phone, just yesterday, my wife and me, we had a, a dear cousin call in great distress. And um, she was seeking out Casey's dad's counsel, and so we immediately referred her to Casey's father for, for counsel. When you have those moments, friends, don't listen to your first selfish instincts. Don't listen to that desire to, well, i got lunch, or I have an appointment, or I've got, I've got to be somewhere else. Those first instincts are off, most often. 
Know the gravity of the situation. Recognize the weight and the importance of the moment. And take time to listen. Take time to be there. Take time to do what is right. Those people who took those pieces surely, surely should have been charged with grand theft. But the Vatican showed mercy toward them and they did what was right. So we also, when faced with an opportunity to do what is right, let us do that for our friends in need, for those dear people who have marital problems or financial problems or some, some other great ordeal that they're going through. Jesus did not have this support. And so we come to a fourth emotion He must have felt. And this word doesn't do it justice. It is unsupported. Unsupported. That word does not do it justice, I have no doubt. I couldn't think of a graver word. you know. But He was so unsupported in His moment of greatest need. So unsupported. So let down. Look again at verse 37 and 38. Then Jesus came and found them sleeping. Sleeping. And He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Simon, Peter's formal name by the way, it's as if Jesus is saying, Neil Robert, what are you doing? Simon, what are you doing? It's only been an hour since your solemn declaration that you would never deny me. And here you are with James and John. At my darkest hour, you're sleeping. Watch, pray, Jesus says, lest you enter into temptation. And with this, with this warning to, to not enter into temptation, we see now how, what close parallels Jesus' uh, experience in the Garden of Gethsemane matches the Lord's Prayer. Consider this. At Gethsemane, Jesus addressed God as His Abba, His Father. In the Lord's Prayer, we are to address God as Father, Abba, Father. At Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for God's will to be accomplished. In the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At Gethsemane, Jesus rebukes the disciples for giving in to their fleshly temptation. And in the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray, lead us not into temptation. Remarkable parallels between Jesus' Gethsemane experience and the prayer that we are told to pray. Jesus says, the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And excuse me for one moment. I have, have had a cold and I need to blow my nose. So you'll, we'll have to cut tape. Alright, you ready for this? We've done this before. And try it again. Excuse me. A cold out there. Alright, a few of you. A few of you are sharing this moment with me. You know what it's like. Okay. Jesus says, The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh... The flesh is weak. Now, over 85% of the time in Scripture, the words, when the words spirit and flesh are used in the same context, it is usually contrasting the Holy Spirit, the powerfulness of the Holy Spirit, with the frailty of human flesh. 85% of the time. Therefore, it's, it's, it's very likely 
that in this case, in, in uh, this verse, verse 38, it's very likely that we should actually see a capital S here. That in fact, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit who resides in you is willing. He's ready. He's on alert. But your flesh is weak. Now, it could also be that it's the human spirit. But even if it were just the human spirit that Jesus is referring to, the only way that statement could be true is if the human spirit was dependent upon the Holy Spirit for its power, for its alertness, for its watchfulness. So when Jesus says the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, He's saying, hey, the Spirit only insofar as it is guided and directed and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, that Spirit is willing. It is ready. It is alert. But your flesh, your flesh is weak. Verse 39. Again, Jesus went away and prayed. And He spoke the same words. And when He returned, He found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know. They did not know what to answer Him. They did not know what to answer Him. They were totally ashamed. A second time, Jesus goes off to pray. To pray the same prayer. And He comes back and they're still sleeping. No words could justify their actions. And if that uh, moment wasn't embarrassing enough for the disciples, it happens yet a third time. Verse 41, Then Jesus came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The disciples' chance to support and help Jesus bear this great load, bear this great burden, it was over. Judas and the multitudes of Jewish officials and officers had arrived and Jesus' arrest was imminent. I, uh, I imagine this moment haunted Peter, James, and John for a long time. To know that uh, the, the, the one that you had been companions with, the one who had entrusted his, his church and his mission to, three of his closest disciples, and at Jesus' darkest hour, they were not supportive of him. They were not companions of him. They, they fell asleep. I imagine this moment haunted them for a long, long time. Don't let these moments haunt you. Once again, if a friend is coming for counsel, if they're coming for help, if they're coming with a great dire need, you do not want to be haunted one day by the notion that you missed out on, that, on meeting that need, on lending that ear, on being there for them in their greatest hour. We must, we must never let ourselves be haunted by a missed opportunity. Engage in others. Pray right there with them. Pray right there with them in their darkest hour. Continue praying for them. 
And when you see them again, ask them how you can continue to pray for their need and support them in that moment. Engage in others. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let it not be thought of you that, that you are one who ignores a friend in need or cuts short a conversation just because you have an appointment elsewhere. Verse 43. Verse 43. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Here come Jesus' betrayer and the multitude with him. Why swords and clubs? Well, they expected a fight, friends. They expected an armed resistance. And in fact, they were justified in that. Because Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, as we will see very soon here in just a moment. They expected armed resistance. I want to make note also, notice that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are there. Don't you find that a bit funny? Um, it, would be like, uh, it would be like the district attorney of Orange County going with the police. To arrest someone. No, the DA says, go arrest them. He doesn't go with them. When the mayor is aware of a crime, he calls in the police and says, go arrest the perpetrator. Go arrest the suspect. The mayor doesn't go with them. The officials go with them. The chief priests go with the multitudes. The, the, the elders go with the multitudes. The scribes go with the multitudes. And they are not. They are not the police. They're the judges. They're the presiding officials. They're the ones who will see Jesus in court. But they go with them. Why? Why would they go with them? That's, that's really... It's a, it's, a, it's a simple line there, but we pass it over and we don't think, well, I wonder why they went with them. I would argue they went with them because they had seen and heard great things from Jesus. They had seen and heard amazing things from Jesus. Some of them had watched Him perform miracles. Some of them had heard astounding teaching from Him. And so even on the night that they were to betray Him, even on the night that they wanted to destroy Him, they still wanted to be in His presence at every moment, just in case Jesus spoke or acted in another astounding manner. They wanted to be there when Jesus was arrested because they wanted to see what He would do. But here we come to our fifth emotion that Jesus would have felt as we approach verse 44 and following, and that is betrayal. Jesus was betrayed. Betrayed by one closest to Him, Judas. Let's read the rest of the account. Verse 44, Now Jesus' betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as Jesus had come, immediately he went up to, to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And then they laid their hands on Jesus and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now surely most of the multitude knew who Jesus was, but in the night, 
it was difficult to properly identify who was who. It was dark. And a kiss was needed by Judas to rightly identify the Jesus that they were arresting. But don't, don't lose sight of, of the idea of betrayal here. Judas betrayed Jesus. Uh, a terrible, terrible act. Jesus went so far as to say it would have been better if, if this man had not been born because of the gravity of his sin. Equally so, Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. And Peter, we, we will see later on in our, our studies, he, he, he denied him. He denied him three times. Both actions were uh, deeply deplorable. But before we chastise their grave sins too much, we must remember that we are no better. We betray Jesus every time we sin. Every time we sin. With each sin, we betray Jesus. We deny Him each time we hide our faith from others, whether in the workplace or, or in some other context. When we're ashamed as we pray in a restaurant or do something that speaks of our faith, the shame that we feel or the times that we hide it or, or put it aside, that's as if we're denying Jesus. So before we chastise Judas and Peter too much, we must remember that we too sometimes partake in their sins. Betraying, I, I would argue that betraying and denying the Lord Jesus Christ is an experience all people share in common. All people share in common. Christian or non. The only difference between a believer who betrays or denies his Lord and an unbeliever who does so is that the Christian is forgiven for doing so while the unbeliever is not. 2 Peter 2.13, an amazing, amazing passage, one that I hold dear. He says, if we are faithless, Paul says, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, God remains faithful to us. Even if we let go, if we betray, if we deny, if we, if we try to take the faith that is ours and to cast it aside for a day or a week or a month, or a year, or a decade? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Because God remains faithful. He can't deny Himself. What can't He deny? What is, what is Paul speaking about? What can't God deny about Himself? He can't deny the promise that He's given to you and me. What promise? The promise is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If we are faithless, God remains true to that promise. Even if we are faithless. And Peter was a prime example of faithlessness. He denied Christ three times. Three times he said, I don't even know this man. And in the last denial, Peter cursed and swore he had nothing to do with Jesus. Peter was faithless in that moment. He was faithless in that time. But God remained faithful to him. Why? Because God cannot deny His promise. He can't deny Himself. He can't deny His Word. And when we believe in His Son, He gives us everlasting life, regardless of future betrayal or denial. I say that again. When He gives us everlasting life, 
He cannot take it back because He's promised to give it unconditionally regardless of betrayal or denial. We can be sure in the case of Judas that Judas never knew Christ in faith. If he had, the Scriptures wouldn't speak of him as being condemned. He never knew Christ in faith. Peter did. There's little difference between Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. But the one difference is this. Peter believed in Jesus Christ. And because he did, his sin was forgiven. Betraying our Lord is forgivable, friends. We shouldn't assume that we read the account of Judas and we say, well, you can't betray him because then you'll be condemned. No, betrayal is forgivable. What's not forgivable is faithlessness. Excuse me, is when we don't have, ever have faith in Christ. What's not forgivable is never having believed in Jesus Christ. That is what condemns a person to hell. But once we believe in that one moment of time in our life when we turn to Christ in faith, eternal life is ours forever. Let's go back to the story here. We're coming to the end. Upon arrest, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, we learn later in another Gospel, rose up in protest. He drew his sword and he cut off the servant of the high priest. He cut off his ear. That's why they had come with swords and clubs. They expected this. But Jesus, He rebuked Peter for His action, though we don't see it in Mark's Gospel. And He went peacefully with the mob. But notice what He says in verse 48. Jesus answered and said to the mob that had come, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take Me? I was, I was daily with you in the temple. Daily teaching. And you did not seize Me then. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Why now, Jesus says, how many opportunities have you had? Why do you come in the darkness of night? Surely it was because they were afraid of what the people would do. Jesus says, I know why you've come, though. It's because the Scriptures needed to be fulfilled. And surely the Scriptures speak many, many times. We don't have a Scripture given here, but the Old Testament Scriptures and Jesus' own words speak many, many times of the darkness and the craftiness of His betrayal and His arrest. Most particularly Isaiah 53, the whole chapter. The suffering servant. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. And that, that is why Jesus was arrested in the manner that He was. Finally, the final two verses, verses 50 and 51. Then they all forsook Him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man and, and the young man laid hold of him, and he left and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. It's a peculiar way to end the story, isn't it? You think, what, what who is this young man in verse fifty one? A young man followed Christ, having a linen cloth thrown about his, his body, and the young men, the multitudes, laid hold of this man and he fled naked, having left in their hands that linen cloth. You know, most scholars believe that this is actually Mark himself. That this is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. They believe that this is a cameo appearance of him. John Mark was known to have resided in Jerusalem. And some scholars speculate that 
on the night of Jesus' betrayal, John Mark being privy to some of the information that was being strewn about the city. Uh, He was in his home and he heard a great mob walking by his door. He saw torches and he saw them armed. And he wondered what was going on and in the the darkness of night he jumped out of his bed and grabbed whatever he could and followed them to the Mount of Olives just outside the city. And uh, he was there, present, having only a, a... small cloth around him because he hastily had left with the mob looking and watching this moment. And they had turned and were trying to seize perhaps some of Jesus' disciples or others who looked suspicious. And John Mark fled, having left that cloth in the hands of the mob. But we can only speculate. Don't know who this man was. But let's not get too distracted by it. Look at verse 50. Here we come to Jesus' final emotion much like the first. Jesus, in verse 50, they all forsook Him and fled. He was forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was denied. He was grieved. He was unsupported. He was betrayed. And He was forsaken. A merciless, merciless last night. I want to bring some, some closure to this. What, what can we take from this? What can we learn from a story that we've been so familiar with over time? A closing thought. Uh, our, Lord, our Lord anguished. He anguished over the cup of God's wrath that lie before Him. And He desired those closest to Him, His disciples, to share in that experience. He wanted them with Him. He took Peter, James, and John with Him to pray in that moment. But the disciples betrayed and forsook Jesus in His hour of greatest need. And we need to learn from their apathy and their indifference. We need to learn from their poor example of apathy and indifference toward Christ. And that brings me to my application. It is this. God is pleased when we recognize, honor, identify with, and emulate Christ's sufferings. He is pleased when we do those things with respect to the sufferings of Christ. And doing so, I believe, produces many, many spiritual benefits. You know, sometimes we think, well, how can meditating on the, on the sufferings of Christ help me? And sometimes we think that that's kind of a, maybe, a, maybe a more uh, Eastern approach to worshiping the Lord. You know, we don't want to focus too much on the suffering because we want to focus on the resurrection, the victory. Equally so, inasmuch as we are to focus on the resurrection as a community, we are also to focus on the suffering of Christ. And I want to tell you why. First, it gives us a heightened appreciation of salvation. Why? Because we know how much it costs. When you know how much something costs, you value it more. And when you meditate on the sufferings of Christ, you are gaining an appreciation for just how great your salvation actually is. How deep Jesus suffered for you. It gives you a heightened appreciation of salvation. Secondly, it gives us a reminder that Christ can empathize with our trials. When we look at the sufferings of Christ, when we think about them, we look and we say, man, of course He he knows what I'm going through. Of course He knows what I'm going through. Whether you're abandoned, whether you've been betrayed, whether you've been forsaken or unsupported, Jesus knows. He's been there with you. 
And that's why the book of Hebrews speaks of him as being a high priest who can identify, who can identify with our weaknesses. Third, meditating on the sufferings of Christ produces in us a renewed spirit of submissiveness to God's will. As Jesus had all those emotions and yet said, I will follow you, Lord, no matter what. Regardless of the fact that I want this cup away from me, I will defer to you. When we can see him do that, it can encourage us to do the same. And so whether you're dealing with cancer or a broken marriage or a dire financial situation, whatever it is, you ask God for relief, you ask Him for help, but you say, but no matter what happens, I will defer to you. Whether it means the rest of my life is troubled by this problem, I will defer to you, Lord. Fourth, it gives us a reminder that we should show special attentiveness to others who are suffering or in need. When we see the betrayal, the forsaking of Jesus by the disciples, it reminds us, don't ever pass up an opportunity in this church with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your family, with your co-workers. Don't ever pass up an opportunity to be attentive to the one in need. And finally, it gives us a more earnest sense of mission. Once again, when we grasp the depth of Jesus' sacrifice, it reminds us how great our salvation is and how much everyone needs to have it as we do. Considering the sufferings of Christ does these kinds of things for us. It is more of a mental thing. But friends, all of our actions, all of our behavior, it starts in the mind. And when we consider the sufferings of Christ, we gain these benefits. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the sufferings of Your Son. We don't like to think about it, Lord, because it's painful. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to suffer. We don't like frailty. We don't like pain and death. But Lord, when we are acquainted with suffering, when we are acquainted with death, it gives us a greater appreciation for life. And when we are acquainted with the sacrifice of Your Son, it gives us a greater appreciation of our salvation. It reminds us He knows what we're going through. It inspires us to defer to Your will. It encourages us to pay attention to the sufferings of others. It does so many of these things, Lord. I pray that our community here at Coast would take time as we read through the Passion narrative to meditate on Your Son's sacrifice and to grow from those meditations. In Jesus' name we pray.